This week on Florida's Fourth Estate, we get a first-person view of the arrest of a six-year-old girl. It is not a good look. I don't want to go to the police car. You don't want to? No, please. You have to. And Floridians were also showing love this week. A man saves a stranger. Her car is sinking into a Florida canal. He was not going to let her drown. Dad, are you good? All right, bring her over. And this week's guest, News 6 investigator Mike DeForest. He profiles a crazy case in which police tracked down a suspected killer through a cousin's DNA. Went up to his great-grandparents, I think, and then branched the family tree down. And I think I saw an OPD investigator quote as saying, this wasn't a family tree, this was a family forest. Hi there, and welcome to another edition of Florida's Fourth Estate, the podcast that focuses on Florida, its issues, and of course, it's crazy. And my name is Matt Austin. So glad to have you with us. We have News 6 investigator Mike DeForest filling in for Ginger with a fascinating look at DNA and how it is changing the landscape of society and criminal investigations. The DNA is fascinating. I'm fascinated being here. This is my first ever podcast. I'm going to hopefully not screw it up for you. You are going to do fantastic, my friend. We first met, I don't know if you know this, Casey Anthony trial on television, me tossing to you and you doing your amazing time-killing dance out in front of the Orange County Court. It's funny in this business, there's a lot of co-workers like you who, yeah, I talked to you through the TV set, but don't actually meet you in person until a couple yeah. weeks later. So nice uh, you, were, you. you were as nice in person as you were uh, on the screen there. <laughs> I was impressed. I appreciate that. We had a good time and uh, you saved me a lot during the Casey Anthony trial and George Zimmerman and all the rest of them. We've done quite a few together. This town seems to produce those uh, high-profile trials. and That it does. And crazy cases, which is what we're starting with right here. I know we talk a lot about kind of wild Florida stories, and this is one of those, but there is a loss of life, so I want to be delicate with this one. Uh, but it is just one of the strangest stories that has ever come into our newsroom, I would say. So I'm going to show you uh, some folks here. One of them is going to be 42-year-old Sarah Boone. She is in some serious trouble because the guy to the right, that is Jorge Torres Jr., obviously she got arrested. Jorge Torres Torres Jr. was found suffocated in a zipped up suitcase, had been left there for several hours, was found at an apartment in Winter Park Monday afternoon. And, you know, she had a very strange reason why his body was found in that suitcase. She said they were well, her story changed a little bit. It, it did it, change and it had to change because they found uh, some video of what was really going on. But because she originally she said what that they were playing hide and seek and that's how he got into the suitcase. That's right. Um, and then what she claimed she passed out drinking or something and that's why she didn't realize he was in trouble. Uh, but then it sounds like law enforcement found some evidence that kind of contradicted her story. Yeah. You know, when you're accused of killing someone having video of the actual act is never a good idea so the officers found video on her phone of her videotaping the suitcase moving around and this guy saying i can't breathe let me out of here and according to uh, the Orange County Sheriff's Department, they say that she was saying, this is how I feel when you choke me. This is how I feel when you cheat on me. And she was basically laughing at they him. Reportedly in the laughing video. in it, yeah. yeah. And and when I saw this come across last night, I was already home and uh, was getting emails about this arrest and uh, just out of curiosity started looking up some of the court files. And the two of them have an extensive domestic violence history. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so uh, I am curious to see once this does become one of those high-profile court cases, if it does make 
make it to trial? Is she going to try to claim that this uh, alleged domestic abuse that happened before this incident was somehow a driver of him ending up dead in this suitcase? I mean, it's uh, it's going to be a very stre- a stretch to say that that was self-defense, but you wonder if that will play a role in her defense. And you just wonder how a guy, because it would be hard to get anybody in a suitcase. He must have been a willing participant maybe in the beginning, and then things just got crazy. But uh, what a terrible way to go. As you said, uh, you wonder about the domestic violence. Uh, we're going to find out a lot more about this case as it as it kind of makes its way through the court system. Troubling, troubling and odd. Blew our minds when we started reading the report on that last night. Another one that has blown a lot of minds. In fact, I saw it on network news uh, after it was on our newscast, which happens a lot because Florida just has these kind of stories. Let me show you this six-year-old being arrested. I did not misspeak. A six-year-old little girl getting arrested. The officers kind of talking to her. Yeah, hey, I got to take you away. She goes, I don't want to be in the police car. He's like, well, you know, he, by the way, her hands are zip tied. He sticks her in this car. And, and I want to play you a little bit of the audio of this situation. Let's listen in. Okay, she's going to have to come with us now. Okay, Kai, you Stand have to up. go with them, baby girl. Stand up. So bring us on. Please, let me go. Please, let me go. Okay, come on. Oh, you can tell me what happened in the car, okay? I don't want to go with the police car. You don't want to? No, please. You have to. Now, I do want to say this Orlando police officer has been fired. Uh, you know, when the story came out that a six-year-old was arrested. And, you know, she was making some bad decisions like six-year-olds do. She was kicking people and, and uh, kind of fighting boiled, with authorities. But what boils down to the policy that Orlando police had, which is that if they needed a supervisor's uh, oversight mm-hmm. uh, when arresting someone under the age of 12, and uh, reportedly this officer did not seek that and kind of took it upon himself to arrest her, and that's what got him in trouble with this. Yeah, it, it just seems like a lapse in common sense where, uh, you know, people aren't it, people aren't wanting to see children arrested, and that is just it's really disheartening. Anybody who has a kid, if you have a six year old, like there's no way they could ever overpower a grown man. That guy, you know, is a veteran. It's just a, it's a tough one to watch. This just reminded me, and it's not related, but uh, I remember I was probably about that age six. My parents were renovating our house. They had borrowed from a, a friend of the family who was a police officer, lent us a saw. And I remember I stepped on the saw, broke the saw. I broke the police officer's saw, and I was terrified that I was going to go to jail for that. And obviously, I'd done nothing wrong, but to actually be hauled away in a patrol vehicle um, had to be terrifying. With the zip you know? ties, because they don't have handcuffs small enough to fit those little hands, there's a reason the handcuffs are not like that. So we have delved into sort of the depths of Florida to start this show, but there are some really good things that happen here, Mike, including this crazy incident where this guy watched this woman drive into a retention pond or a lake. And I've got to show you because he saves her. Take a look. Hurry up, guys. Hurry up, guys. Dad, dad, jump out. Dad, get out. I don't think it's, oh my God. Get out, get out, get out. Dad, are you good? All right, bring her over. Okay, get her off. You need a knife? A knife, a knife, a knife. So 
So if you're just listening to this podcast and this panic here, uh, there is a white SUV that is in what looks like uh, some sort of maybe side canal or something. Basically, a woman was having a seizure, drove right into the water. This guy strips down real quick into his underwear, jumps in there, and when he gets a look inside the car he looks back and says she's still having a seizure he jumps in through the window ends up saving this woman's life and if he hadn't been there she would not still be alive it is amazing that people are there and obviously that does look like it was a canal but i know sometimes we see these vehicles end up in retention ponds yeah uh, it's amazing how deep those are and those cars will only float for a a few minutes before they go under so uh, time is always of an essence when you've got a car in the water like that and of course somebody having a medical condition but uh, just uh, yeah amazing that they were there and uh, had the bravery to jump in on this. Well, and these retention ponds, canals, they can be scary in Florida. You never know if there are gators or snapping turtles or amoebas or anything else. He didn't care. He just jumped right in and saved a life. So good on him. Yep. Great to see that. All right. It is time for our most famous segment, Mike. Hit it, Derek. And now, your Floridian of the Week. <laughs> Is that why you brought me on? All right, Mike, oh, this is sorry. you this week. No, actually, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna show you a picture of a woman who was having a rough one. Uh, she was leaving a liquor store in Brevard County. Okay, so she's just leaving the liquor store. So obviously, this was like a second run, maybe a third. She hits a part of the store, uh, like a pillar of the store, twice, not just once. And so somebody calls the cops. They find her at her house. The cop says she was so drunk when she got back to her house after driving that distance that she actually fell into her own trunk. It did not close, but she fell into it somehow. And then he promptly arrested her after she said, quote, I'm going to kick your ass to the officer who was attempting to arrest her. And those are fighting words, except if you're sitting in a trunk, you're, you're a little <laughs> bit of a physical disadvantage. That, that's a good point. You know, you're not at a good angle when you're stuck in the trunk saying, I'm going to kick your ass. So that is our Floridian of the week. Her name is Kristen Keith, by the way, Kristen. Hopefully uh, things start picking up for you after <laughs> this. Mike DeForest, we brought you on this show. You did a fascinating story about DNA and a lot of people are excited to find out where they came from, where their family, what their family history is, but that does have some consequences. It's interesting how this story evolved. Uh, we were talking to our editors in our investigative unit. We wanted to do a piece. Everybody was now buying into these like Ancestry DNA or uh, 23andMe, and there had been news stories done about some of the potential privacy risks, which aren't majorly severe, but we were looking for some unique angle that nobody had done before. And the one angle I had wanted to do for a while is uh, we had just started hearing about people who were getting arrested for crimes and they were tied to the crimes and identified through DNA that a relative had submitted to one of these genealogy databases. And I always wanted to speak to one of those people who just innocently uploaded their DNA, wanting to find out about their relatives and end up nabbing a cousin or an aunt or an uncle yeah. uh, for a crime. And, and what is their reaction when they are inadvertently put in this position? It just so happened, I, I started looking into, it was actually one of the first, it wasn't the first, but one of the first cases in the nation uh, right here in Central Florida where uh, a person was arrested for murder uh, using one of these genealogy databases. It was the murder of a, a UCF student back in 2001. And uh, I started going through the court records and buried in the court records was the name of the person who had submitted this ancestry DNA test. And I discovered he lived in Valdosta, Georgia. They weren't from around here, the families. And um, 
So as soon as I find this name, I call him up, get him on the phone, uh, say, hey, did you know that your DNA led to the arrest of a cousin? He had no idea. Really? Because uh, law enforcement really wouldn't have had to contact him. Once they arrested the suspect, there was no need to, and, and we can explain this later, kind of how the police uh, solved this crime. But uh, apparently they never went back and said, oh, by the way, you helped us here. Mm-hmm. I broke that news to him. Uh, so I said, hey, can you meet us tomorrow? So uh, my photographer, Darren, and I, we hauled up to uh, Valdosta, Georgia, because this is the interview I wanted to get. And here's a little snippet of it. You told me that my DNA helped solve a 17 year cold case murder. I just couldn't believe it. That was his reaction. That is Christine Frankie. She was uh, murdered in 2001 in her apartment near the uh, Orlando Fashion Square Mall. Now, uh, when uh, when crime scene investigators were checking that scene out, they found that the perpetrator had left DNA at the crime mm-hmm. scene. And so they had the DNA. And for 17 years, Orlando police were unable to link that DNA to anyone. They ran it through FBI databases of people who have been arrested before. No match. So this guy had never been in the system. Um, they checked uh, dozens and dozens of her friends, her co-workers, uh, even down to she worked at a, at a cigar bar at uh, City Walk. And one of the uh, co-workers said, oh, there was this guy who used to come in and flirt with her. We think he worked at another store here at Universal. They got all the guys who resembled uh, the possible flirter. Mm -hmm. And one guy, they followed him around, got an old sandwich that he discarded and checked the DNA. Wasn't him. Uh, Found another guy, actually traced his phone, stopped him in a traffic stop, got his DNA. Wasn't him. That's how extensive they were working and could not find anybody who matched this DNA. Until along comes John Hogan, that guy you just saw there, the one who lived up in Valdosta, Georgia. And so the story goes that it was a couple years ago, he was curious about his ancestors. Ancestors. Uh, he uh, believed that probably some of his ancestors came to this country as slaves. He was interested about his history. He said he has a big family. So uh, I think it was Ancestry DNA. He uh, submitted the test, uh, got the results back. Now, um, a lot of these private companies like Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, they have privacy rules and they're not going to share them outside of what you give them permission for. Uh, but a lot of people, what they'll do is uh, you can see this logo up there on your screen, uh, GEDmatch. Um, it's a, a separate, open, free genealogy database. So when you get your DNA results from uh, one of these private companies, you can submit it to this public database. And that's how you can compare your DNA to everybody else who is submitted. Well, what happened is it was uh, shortly before this murder case was solved, uh, the Golden State Killer in California, a serial killer. It was the very first time Uh, Law enforcement had submitted DNA into this genealogy database, and they were able to arrest a suspect. Well, it was two weeks after that suspect was arrested. Orlando police said, let's try it on the Christine Frankie case. Submitted the DNA from the killer from the crime scene, and they get a match. And what they were able to determine was that John Hogan, that man, was related to the killer. Uh, There was another cousin, uh, I think it was his mom's cousin had also submitted a DNA test. And so they were able to, uh, without notifying the family, they could see where the killer, what family tree they came Uh from. Um, so, well, let me ask you this, not to get in the middle, because this is a fascinating story. I like to talk. Does he know, <laughs> does John Hogan know this person, who the killer is? He had heard the name, and he knew the killer's mom, uh, the suspect who was arrested, uh, Benjamin Holmes. I guess he was known as Little Ben in the family, and he had heard the name, but he had never met him. And in fact, I held up his photograph when we went up there and said, have you ever seen Ben before? No. Um, 
But what uh, it was fascinating with this, once they knew what family it came from, uh, law enforcement and genealogists uh, basically created the family tree, starting at the man you met, John Hogan, mm -hmm. went up to his great-grandparents, I think, and then branched the family tree down. And I think I saw an OPD investigator quote as saying, this wasn't a family tree, this was a family forest. <laughs> there were lots of uh, multiple kids through multiple marriages, an enormous family. But as they're going down each branch, they can see which ones are resembling more and more the DNA structure of, of the, the killer. Finally, they discover that uh, it's most uh, closely resembling, um, I can't remember the relation to Mr. Hogan, uh, but a, a woman who lived in Valdosta, Georgia. They knock on her door. She agrees to give them a DNA sample. And through that DNA sample, they now know that the killer is one of her two children. Both of them live in Orlando. So like, boom, we got it. Wow. So then what they do is to identify which of these two kids it is. Uh, they put uh, surveillance teams on both of them. And one of them was uh, he uh, installed air conditioners, I think. And so they followed him to a construction site and an undercover detective, I don't know, dressed in a construction worker, I don't know, uh, approaches him and gives him a Gatorade bottle watches him drink the Gatorade. They go get the Gatorade bottle, run the te a DNA test on the lip of the bottle. Not a match. So it's probably brother, the other brother. That case, they go stake out his house. They're watching him. They see him out in front of his yard smoking cigars. Drops a cigar in the yard. They have a warrant for this. Uh, they pick up the cigar. Boom. It's a match. Got him. Um, what's interesting is law enforcement will say it wasn't this genealogy database that was the evidence. It only pointed them to the possible suspect because ultimately what they had to do is now they had probable cause it was highly likely according to police that mm -hmm. it was benjamin holmes this guy smoking the cigars uh, so once they had the match on the cigars they get a warrant uh stop him and that's when they actually take a dna swab from his mouth i think it was from his mouth and that they police say matched the DNA at the crime scene. And that is the evidence that landed him in jail and is he's waiting trial. That's interesting to hear you explain it like that, because a lot of people are thinking the evidence comes from the DNA ancestry Jed match website that just allows them to get to the evidence, the official cheek swab from that human being that they've been trying to find for who knows how many years. That's the actual right. evidence. And what is going to be fascinating when we watch this case go to trial is that is to my knowledge and what I saw in the latest court papers, that DNA is the only evidence that connects the suspect, Benjamin Holmes, to the murder victim, Christine Frankie. They have supposedly not found any other connections, that he knew her, that he worked with her, that he lived in the area. Absolutely no connection. If not for that DNA, they would have no idea who it was. Of course, that opens up a window for the defense, which the defense is going to say this entire case rests entirely on this DNA. And I've seen Benjamin Holmes, a defense attorney, has already said that he has found suggestions that there was contamination of the DNA. So, you know, he's going to attack that DNA um, and the credibility of it. But that is the only thing. There is no other secondary evidence. So there's evidence. no murder weapon. There's no, no uh, a witness who may have seen him or an alibi. They just have this, I would imagine, blood or semen or something like that. It, it, it was semen left at the scene. And, um, and 
yeah, no evidence, no witness putting him there. And wow. and normally that would be an extremely weak case yeah. is you have nothing tying them except this very specific DNA code that they say they matched. So the question will be for this jury, will they be able to convict a man on a very hefty sentence with a prosecutor who's saying, why else would this guy's DNA and semen be in this murdered woman's Wow. Exactly. That is going to be tough on that jury, I would imagine. That's not an open and shut case. Now, now back to the story I originally wanted to tell, which was finding a guy like John Hogan who gave his DNA Mm -hmm. and ends up nabbing a distant cousin that he never met. And I was curious his reaction. And his reaction was, you know what? If you do the crime, you do the time. And so he was thrilled. In fact, he said he was uh, he hated that this happened to the family of Christine Frankie, but felt relieved that he was inadvertently able to play a role in helping them bring closure. It was 17 years. This was a 17-year cold case that uh, his DNA inadvertently helped solve, according to police. Yeah. And so um, there and was I think that most, relief. I think most people would agree with that. Like, hey, if you don't have anything wrong with you, if you haven't done anything wrong in the past, then there's no harm in this. But I do feel like I wonder if he would feel the same way if this were maybe like a really close brother or, you know, uh, a nephew that he's been tight with. You know, it's easy for him. He doesn't even really know this guy, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, and, and you do wonder if there are those tensions in this big family now. I mean, uh, some would call him a snitch. He didn't mean to be a snitch. It was his DNA that did the snitching. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he did understand why some people would have privacy concerns. And uh, this GEDmatch, this database where you take your own private tests from like Ancestry DNA and you submit it to this secondary genealogy database after there was a lot of concern when they started making lots of arrests um, based on genealogy, uh, they changed the rules. And so now when you submit your DNA to this master genealogy database, you have to opt in to share it with others Mm -hmm. and opt out, I believe, if you don't want law enforcement being able to look at it. So by the rules, if you opt out, law enforcement shouldn't be able to look at it, of course. That's a law enforcement person being honest and reaching out and saying, hey, we're with the police. We're checking this out. Law enforcement could very easily, uh, surreptitiously submit a DNA sample, not acknowledge that they're police. Sure. See, who does this match? And Mm. so it's a shady area. Uh, Wow. Gray area. Yeah. It's very, uh, very interesting. I think probably most people would be on the side of, hey, well, if it gets results, it gets results. But uh, there are going to be a few people. uh, I wonder about those people who are going to be in your family. Like, I really don't think you should do this (laughs) Ancestry.com. You know, now all of these people who maybe have some skeletons in the closet are going to be urging family members. I really don't think we should find out, you know, who we are, where we came from. You know, and we don't know yet what kinds of future questions we will have about our own DNA. For example, I know uh, one debate that's raging over uh, these ancestry tests is what if your insurance company gets a hold of it? Mm-hmm. Um, will they see that you are more prone to a, a disease or an illness and jack your rates up? And and actually, uh, there have been states, including Florida, that have considered banning that. And the insurance industry has the counter argument, which says, hey, when you buy insurance, it's a gamble. Um, we're betting that you're going to be a, a, a 
okay. And if you know something about your past that we as the insurance industry don't know about, basically you've tipped the tables in your favor on this, and it's not an even bet anymore. Um, so what is going to happen with this uh, DNA information besides solving crimes? And that's kind of what the future is up to is where, where is this going to go? Okay, you just found the part that I don't like. I like the, oh, let's put serial killers away. But when it becomes to corporate America having access to our DNA, our vulnerabilities, and how much it's going to cost to insure us, that is a very uncomfortable line right there. And you don't eat, and you can have all the problems in the world and and say, I am not submitting my DNA to any of this. I, that's no, that's nobody's business. But if your mom does or your brother does, <laughs> they are steps away from having yours anyway. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Man, this is uh, this feels like Pandora's box. I feel like there are a lot of issues out there we don't even understand yet that will crop up and you know 20 30 years but without it this cold case would probably never be solved and this family wouldn't have closure and uh, benjamin holmes would still be out there free of course his attorney is going to argue he should be free anyway yeah and so that trial has not happened not yet uh, the, the attorney still uh, the defense attorney is still investigating they're actually uh, uh, it's private attorney, but he's getting state money, uh, mm -hmm. basically acting as a public defender. And uh, they are now trying to he's now trying to get a forensic expert and a DNA expert uh, for the state to help pay for their defense to to work on that, because that is going to be the crux of this case. This single DNA strand that matches. I want to watch that. I would imagine it's going to be a short case, right? There can't be many witnesses. Uh, <laughs> it's, they're just going on DNA evidence and that's it. It will probably if, if what the defense attorney is already hitting hinting at that there could be questions of contamination that is going to be it, it is going to dive into the specifics of how was this dna collected where was it stored of course prosecution will say how else would benjamin holmes dna have ever mixed up because again remember he's never been in the system his dna has never been in the system it's not like uh, the police had his blood here from a, mm -hmm. a prior arrest or that his dna was already in the fbi database from a prior arrest he was clean never uh, had a felony that required a dna sample until his arrest in this is case. there a possibility that the judge could rule that that evidence inadmissible um now you're getting above my head in terms <laughs> of uh, admissibility but uh, again, this is, I mean, people have been prosecuted on DNA. I remember yeah. uh, when I was in college uh, uh, as a, a young intern covering the O.J. Simpson case, and that was one of the first biggies with, with DNA. So um, people have been uh, convicted by DNA, and, and this is the case. The fact is, most of these other cases, there is other corroborating evidence. Sure. Here, you've got nothing but the DNA. Yeah, like a glove that fits really well on your hand or something like that. No. <laughs> Just don't have that in this case. <laughs> yeah, all right. Mike DeForest, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much been for fun. joining us for Florida's Fourth Estate. Uh, we're going to keep up to date on this case. As soon as something happens with that trial, we will let you know right here on your favorite podcast. My name is Matt Austin. We've got Derek and Tiffany in the back. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. Thank you.